Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. Amy Romberg! I'm so excited! Episode 2 of Season 2. Can you believe we've made it this far together? It's been amazing so far. I can't wait to jump in. <laughs> it's been like a couple of weeks since our last episode and I like I end up missing you and I have to like call you in the middle of the day and just be like, hi, how are you? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the bonus of all of this togetherness is that we get to talk more, which is great. We have a guest here today. He's in the green room. David Angelo is waiting for us. He's with CB Bang. We get to talk to him in segment two of this podcast, which will be great. But what's going on in your world, girl? You're like first year real estate agent this year. What is your biggest challenge right now? You know, I've been thinking so much in the past couple of days, partially because my son is like on spring break, which all of a sudden all of your real routines are thrown completely up in the air. And I'm basically trying to figure out how to parent and do my job. And I just keep thinking about time management. And I think that people who've been in this business longer are probably so much better at figuring out how to wrangle that than I am right now. Okay, so you've got a son, but spring break when you're 16 is really different than spring break (laughs) when you're, how old is your son? Because my son's 16 years old. How old is yours? Carlisle is five. Five. Okay, so spring break. We're not talking like Palm Springs and G-Strings. No, no, not at all. No. So five-year-old spring break. I love that idea. For you guys, it just becomes like a 24-hour job because Mm -hmm. kiddos like just never shut down. And so you're trying to do that and run your business and your wife is working at the same time too, right? I just want to say quickly, I recognize that this is like, we've been lucky enough to have this amazing childcare set up through most of the past year. So, and I know that so many people are having to wrestle in a different way than they usually would just because of COVID. But we just got thrown into a bit of a tailspin with spring break and 24 hour parenting again. You know, and with time management, I mean, I've learned a couple of good skills around time management. Most of it all comes down to setting boundaries and that Mm. we teach people how to treat us. One of the big conversations that we're having at Spade and Archer right now is weekend emails, phone calls, and text messages. Like how do you decipher what gets answered on the weekends and what things get pushed to Monday? And essentially we've come down to, we've created a litmus test that says like, like if you meet the following criteria, then you can get an answer during the weekend, which is basically like it is time sensitive. It is very important. We will lose the job if we don't answer. Mm-hmm. So like if you meet those three things, then you get an answer during the weekends. Other than that, if it's like, you know, hey, we're interested in home staging. We'd love some information about your company. That's somebody who's just bored on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'll send an email and I'll get an answer back, you know, on Monday or whatever. We do have a rule that says if you got an email during the weekend, it gets answered by noon on Monday. Like it gets oh. done. I like that. Yeah. So that you don't end up with things but like you're answering something on Thursday that you got on the weekends. So mm-hmm. it gives us a chance to shut down and actually get some rest and pull away from it. Mm-hmm. It also teaches our clients that if you email us on the weekends, you're probably not going to get a response until Monday. And that's mm-hmm. just because we are teaching our clients how to treat us. Mm-hmm. If we are answering emails and phone calls at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, they're going to learn that that's when they can talk to us. That's when they can teach 
that's when they can work with us. I've got a buddy who he only answers emails from eight to nine in the morning and from five to six in the afternoon and the rest of the day doesn't do emails. So that's what's called batching. You can go ahead and batch all the messages that you get and you can set aside in your calendar and say, these are the hours that I answer emails and voicemails and phone calls and all of those things. And I do that for two hours a day. And surprisingly enough, when you don't do anything else, you can rip through a ton of emails in one yeah. hour. That's a gigantic one. Another thing that I do that I always love is when we did in-person meetings, even with Zoom meetings, when I sit down with a meeting with somebody, I say to them, I do have another meeting right after this. I've got to jump out of here at noon. I'm going to jump out of here at noon. I'm going to go ahead and set a timer for 55 minutes. That'll go off five minutes before the end of our meeting. And that tells us we have five minutes left to wrap this up. And when you set that expectation mm-hmm. right in the beginning that you're like, I'm not here for three hours. This is not going to, that's not going to happen. People really get to the meet and understand. And when you respect your own time, people really start to respect your time as well. And so that's a gigantic time saving things as well. And it seems like these are all sort of expectation related. Like even with, you know, with the calls and emails on the weekend, you're helping folks not have the expectation. You're setting the expectation that you're not going to be available during that time, unless obviously something's urgent. All of that just seems like it, it probably clears up a lot of confusion and maybe messiness because people just know that this is what we've got. And then during that hour or that 55 minutes that I'm dedicating to that person, my phone is turned off. It's on silent. It's in my pocket. I don't even look at it because I know it's going to remind me when it's done. And because I have a set time when I'm going to get back to all those phone calls and emails and messages that I wasn't able to do during that hour of time, I get to fully dedicate my attention to that person. And every single person who's queued up in my line is going to get that same exact dedication that I'm paying attention to only them at that time. And it becomes like greatly appreciated. There are so many bells and whistles and buzzers that are going off in our pockets all around us that are trying to distract us to buy stuff. Ultimately, everybody wants us to buy things, right? (laughs) I'm very rarely offended. I hate the term the American consumer. It turns us into this this giant consuming machine. We're like Pac-Man. We just walk a walk a walk a walk a walk a walk a and eat (laughs) stuff. Just shove it in our mouths. The American consumer. That term disgusts me. And so I really, really, really make a huge effort to not allow advertising into my life by shutting things off. That's a really good way to do it. That's helped a lot with my time management. Absolutely. And because there's so much of the time when you have to be on in this business, both you and I, even though we're we're in different roles within it, it does seem like clearing up and really focusing on the times when you can be off, when you can turn it off. And also I like the idea, Justin, of just reducing all the times you're pulled into other things that in the end are fairly meaningless or just distractions. There's just so much that is available to us that is yeah. just a pure distraction these days. My husband and I's 19th anniversary wedding anniversary this week and we went on a walk this morning for an hour and a half and I put my phone on silent and I stuck it in my pocket we went for a walk for an hour and a half when we got back Joe went and used the restroom and for the five minutes he was in the restroom I opened up my phone and checked my emails I had 97 emails in an hour and a half 97 emails and I ripped through them in about four minutes because most of them were just informational they were just things I needed to know about but I don't need to do anything with them there was one email that I had to answer and I picked up the phone and called Cole and I was like hey here's the thing that I think we should do about that and that was it and it took five minutes. But if I had checked my email all 97 times during that hour and 45 minute long walk, it would have taken me almost the entire time to get through that. I would have been on my phone constantly. But to be able to just set that thing down and be like, this is an hour and 45 minutes I'm going to dedicate to you in honor of your 19 years of service. Mm -hmm. Good job. Yes. (laughs) It's not really asking a lot, right? 
Yeah. yeah. I, I think I know you well enough, Justin. I mean, I think we do this job because we love the creativity that being self-employed, being an entrepreneur, that that's what it allows us, right? It allows us to, to be able to manage our own time so that we can spend time with the people that we love and we can focus on that. And so learning to turn it off all the way, that's what you need to stay present with Joe and Dooley and exist outside of Spade and Archer. But it requires an incredible amount of self-discipline yes. because there's no box that says to you clock in now clock out now and yeah. when you're done you're done with this because like they say <laughs> your phone can either give you freedom or it can be your dog collar yeah. and you're on a leash constantly tied to work and so being able to set those boundaries on when you're going to be involved with that phone and when you're not going to be involved with that phone is incredibly important and I and I love the bells and whistles like Google Calendar is yeah. my savior I'm like okay Google Calendar has made everything all okay now I love a good doodle poll if anybody's not using doodle polls if you've got <laughs> a party where maybe a divorce is going on. So the three most stressful times in our life are death, divorce, and moving. And when you've got a divorce and a home sale, you've got two of those things going on. And sometimes it's really difficult to get both parties in the same room. And a doodle poll works really, really well. It takes all the emotion out of it. You can say, hey, here's all the times that I'm available. Let me know what times you're available. Whatever we line up with, we'll take that first one. It works great because you can't talk to the other parties to the doodle poll. You can just tell them when you're available and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like with an email chain trying to coordinate a time, it yeah. can take weeks to coordinate a time together. There's a lots of technology that worked for us. At Spade and Archer, like when I was doing all of the things, there were kind of three different types of days that we worked on. There was an installation day or a D stage, which is like physical moving of furniture in and out of spaces. There was a consultation day, which was going and meeting with individual people's one-on-one, -on -one, usually four or five parties a day. And then there was open house days where you would go and you would sit in an open house and parties would walk through and you would talk to 40 or 50 people. I always thought that the most exhausting days of those three would be the moving days, the days where you're moving furniture back and forth. Ultimately, those were the days when I was not exhausted. The ones where I was the most wipe out was open house days uh -huh. because you are on. You're just on the entire time. You are just in the introduction of this show. Like <laughs> it's like it's hard to keep that energy up for five hours. It's mm -hmm. rough. You know, when people think of real estate as being easy. It's not easy. It's just different. It's just a different skill set. Yes. <laughs> That's what I got. Yeah. I think in order to survive, you have to learn to turn it off, right? You have to learn yeah. to, to recharge where you can. And maybe you don't need to check your email right before you go to bed one more time. I love the idea of batching. That makes a lot of sense. We do also do one thing really differently at our company that I think most companies don't do. A lot of companies you'll find when you send an email and somebody's on vacation, you get an auto response that says mm -hmm. like, I'm not here. Good luck. You know, or like call someone else. We don't actually do auto responses. When somebody's out of town, we actually forward their phone calls and their emails to a colleague that says like, if I'm out of town, then my emails are going to forward to Cole. And if Cole's out of time, his emails are going to forward to Chad. And Chad kind of takes care of all of those things that are yes. that are coming in. When you get back from vacation, you can just rip those emails and be like, oh, all this stuff has been taken care of, but I am now caught up and informed on what's going on. Because a lot of times with an auto response, you come back and none of the things that have happened have been dealt with and now you get to do the last week of work in one day. It's 
punitive. We used to talk about that a lot in my previous job. You know, if you got lucky, someone would send you something with a huge attachment and it would block your inbox the whole time you were out. (laughs) But if not, government work, government work. I love it. You came back to so many emails. By the time you were done with your first Monday back, you were like, oh my gosh, like my vacation glow is gone and I'm buried. As a real estate agent, if you can find a buddy Mm -hmm. that you can buddy up with and be like, hey, I will cover your emails and your clients when you're out of town, if you would do the same thing for me. My biggest suggestion on this is make an agreement that says like, I'm going to be out of town X amount of weeks per year, and you're going to be out of town X amount of weeks per year, because it can be really easy to make that an uneven balance. We're like, you know, mm-hmm. agent A is out of town a, a week every month and agent C is out a week every year. Yeah. That's not a fair balance. So find somebody who has some kind of a similar work ethic to you, a similar mm-hmm. style to you, and do those auto forwards instead of auto responses. They are gigantic. And your client feels like they're being taken care of. And a lot of times clients just need a voice. They just need a warm body to talk to. Talk me through this. What am I supposed to do here? It is a gigantic savior. I mean, just to offer that to your employees too, just in terms of coming from the mental health background that I do in terms of like work-life balance and in terms of allowing the folks that you work with to totally turn off. Like that, that's pretty amazing. I have seen the results of people not taking vacations Mm -hmm. and truly taking vacations. And what happens is they quit. They leave. They get, they get so out. frustrated and so burnt out that they they're like they're gone. This is an intense enough business that you just can't do that to people. You can't yep. expect it of people. I know for a fact, I love my business. I could do my job 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year and be completely happy with it. But that is not everybody. <laughs> and I need to respect those boundaries, especially if I expect my boundaries to be respected as well. We expect the respect. I'm just making it rhyme here. <laughs> So David's in the green room. I'm pretty sure he brought his Speedo with him so he could jump into the hot tub. And so do you want to go back and grab him? So, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to... Okay, good. <laughs> Let's talk to David Angelo. David Angelo, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you? How are you? I'm very excited to be here. This is your first time, is that right? New to podcasting, but now I have podcasted, so check you that box. You are now officially a podcaster. So you met our lovely host, Amy, when she went back and grabbed you in the green room. What do you think of the green room? Do you like that hot tub? Pretty cool, right? The hot tub was fantastic. The food was, it was unbelievable. We had that caviar flown in from Russia, so it was really hard with the Suez Canal this week and everything. It was rough. Tell us about you, man. We don't know anything about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How did you end up in the lovely world of real estate? I'm from Seattle. I grew up on Queen Anne in the city, stayed around here until I was uh, 18, ready to go to college, you know, moved back east, did the scary move to the other side of the country when you don't know anybody thing. Stuck around there for a while. I went to Northeastern University and studied music business, of all the things. (laughs) So wait, Northeastern, that's like it's those that they call it Northeastern, Northwestern? No, but a lot of people confuse Northeastern with Northwestern, which is great because Northwestern is a way better school. <laughs> so so I usually take it. You majored in, in the business of music, not the actual music part. So like, what are the classes that you take when you're majoring in business music? It was everything from regular business classes to music theory classes to artist management and music products and all of these in-between 
things that sound really fun and are really exciting classes to be in that maybe don't really help you learn any actual skills that you can use in the real world. But it was a ton of fun. And when I started in school, we were downloading our music on Napster, which started at Northeastern. <laughs> and then by the time I graduated, the iPhone was about to come out. So it was wow. just this huge shift in the business. And the business was just failing. People were downsizing by the floor. And so I had this great piece of paper that said I was an expert in, in a failing business and needed to figure out what I was going to do from there. Were you a kid that loved music? Like, how did you end up? I mean, were you in the choir? Like, what? <laughs> you just managed the choir. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. What, what leads one to, to music degree? Definitely not in the choir. Definitely not. I, mean, I had a DJ business in high school. Oh, amazing. That's the piece yeah. I wanted. I was like, something here is going to connect. Yeah. And I just thought it was like, it was like a fun thing. It was like a cool thing, right? So yeah. I had this DJ business and we DJ birthday parties and school dances. And I thought, wow, if the rest of my life could be like this, that would that would be awesome. You were setting yourself up. I went to a bowling alley, middle school, where, where they had like the cosmic bowling, you know, with all the all the black lights <laughs> and everything. And there was a guy DJing that event and he looked like Yanni with the with the hair, you know. And I just remember thinking, man, if I could just DJ at the bowling alley. This is the best. That guy has yes. got it all. What more could I want? He's got like the cool <laughs> mixer and he's got the best gig. The biggest fish in this little tiny pond, right? Yes. Here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I thought, wow, well, this will be cool. Let's let's do that. And then yeah. like everyone with a degree in music, I went and got a job at Nordstrom. Um, <laughs> so did you stay in Boston? Or did you come back to the Pacific Northwest to work at Nordstrom? Started with Nordstrom actually back east. It's pretty fun because as a Seattle kid, like we all know what Nordstrom is, right? We've all been in and out of the stores growing up. And back east, nobody knew what it was. They had just come into that market. So ah. it was getting to introduce that kind of service first culture. Mm -hmm. The only rule is to do do what you think is right and to get to introduce that to a whole region of people who you know when you walk up to them and you smile and, and you say how you doing they just look at you like why are you talking to me like i didn't i wasn't talking to you why are you bothering me? And so that was fun. And then yeah, I moved back here with, with the company a few years later. That Pacific Northwest culture can be really confusing. After living in San Francisco for 11 years, I moved back to, up to Portland after growing up in, in Boise, Idaho. And as we were checking out at the grocery store, the grocery store clerk said, how are you today? And I looked up from him and I was like, why? <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so I'm so sorry I said that you're just trying to be nice to me. Because in San Francisco, if somebody asks you how you are, they want money or directions or they want something from you. In the Pacific Northwest, they honestly just want to know how you're doing. And to take that culture and try to transmit all of that to the East Coast for an entire business model, it must be very difficult. It was just persistence. You're just I'm just going to keep being nice to you. And that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, you just found a way to connect with them and to help them. But Justin, you bring up one of my biggest pet peeves, which I'm going to share because I try to shout it from the rooftops every chance that I get, is when you ask someone how they're doing and they say not too bad, I always just think, how bad then? Yeah. If you're not too bad, <laughs> just lightly bad. how like 20% bad, 30% bad, like how much bad do you have in your life? I, I'll give you an alternative. My son asked me, how are you today? And I said, swelligant. He goes, I don't think that's a word. I said, well, it's a mixture between swell and elegant. And that's yeah. how I feel today. And he was like, oh, okay. We can go and he it. took yeah. that. He was like, great. He took Perfect. It. 
Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think he'll be using it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, 16 year old mm-hmm. straight black kid using the word swelligant probably doesn't go over. <laughs> there are some privileges as a gay man. We get to make up funny words like that. So yeah, some good mm-hmm. things. So somehow you make it from Nordstrom, you end up Nordstrom in Boston to real estate in Seattle again. How does that transition happen? I moved home. We got an apartment, my wife and I, and then our rent was going to go up $500 a month. And we were like, we don't just have an extra $6,000 this year mm-hmm. that we just have have nothing else to do with. So we bought a townhouse and our mortgage was less than our rent at the time. And then I never stopped. I just kept looking at real estate and thinking about real estate and watching the real estate TV shows. Even though it's not real life, it makes for a fun idea of what your life could be like. And I thought, why don't I give this a shot? I have nothing to lose. I have no kids at the time. If I fail, I'll just go back to the job that, that I have. Were you all dual income at that point? Not only dual income, my uh, benefits, health insurance was through my wife. That's huge. But I saved up, put a little bit of money aside, started taking my, you know, online real estate classes. And six (laughs) months later, got my license and then gave my notice and said, hey, I'm going to go try to do this new thing with my life. And I've enjoyed being here at Nordstrom and I've learned an unbelievable amount that's, you know, that I'll be able to use in the future. But let's try something new. What was your overlap duration? How long were you still at Nordstrom while you were doing real estate at the same time? Zero days. I just left and I thought, if you're going to do it, you have to do it. Because otherwise, if you fail and you're only doing it part time, how will you ever know why you failed? Amy's still in her first year of real estate. Did you do overlap with your other job? And how long did that last for you? I didn't intend to do overlap. As you know, I was managing a mental health clinic and I had my departure date and then COVID hit. I had a bunch of direct reports and the VA is notoriously slow at replacing folks and COVID hit and it was just wild. So I wound up doing about six months of overlap instead of zero months of overlap. David, I love that. I, like you, was just going to jump in and see what happened. Out of the goodness of your heart, you yeah. helped people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's just a good person. Did you hear that, David? Amy's a good person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote it down, actually, so I can good, good, good. Well, well, yeah. I'll ask you about it later, David. Okay. <laughs> David, one of the first times I remember meeting you, I think I met you a couple of times at this point, but I was speaking at a breakfast for like global luxury for Cobalt Banker Bane. You walked up to me and you said, Justin Reardon, David Angela, nice to see you. How are you? You know, and you like reminded me of like what your name was, where we had met last time, how I related to you. You made this interaction so incredibly easy for me because I'm terrible with names because I'm like, oh, that's the guy who works here and he has a three bedroom house with two bedrooms, two, two bathrooms. I could draw your floor plan before I could remember your name. But you made this interaction just incredibly easy for me. And I feel like maybe that's your differentiator is that you just make it super easy to talk. Where does that come from? How did you grow that skill? A lot of it came from Nordstrom. And first, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. If you can talk to people, you can excel. I mean, I'll never forget when I started in this business, I was meeting with a broker, a very, very successful, very seasoned broker who said to me, you answer your phone and you dress well, so you'll be successful. And I thought, okay, that's where the bar is set, right? (laughs) None of what we do is rocket science. It's listening to people. It's helping people. It's talking to people and it's sharing our our knowledge with them. I hate saying that I work in sales because I don't think I'm trying to sell things to people. I'm I'm trying to help people buy homes and I'm trying to help sellers sell homes. No one wants to work in sales. Let me rephrase that. No one wants to be a sleazy used car salesperson. Salesman. 
Yeah. And as soon as you say sales, that's what most people equate it to. It's very interesting. I've never thought of real estate as sales. I've always thought of it as a service industry, which is very different than a sales industry. Of course, answer phone, dress well, right there. Recipe for success. We work with probably 5,000 agents at any given time. We have about a a $5,000 agent base in each one of our cities that we work in. And I can always tell you when a real estate agent is not going to be a real estate agent next year. And it's because I call them up and their voicemail says, this mailbox is currently full. And I'm like, this person will not be in business next year. It's just not going to happen. Or when you call somebody and then they immediately text you and say, if you want to talk to me, send me a text. This person will not be in business next year. Now, true enough, you get a lot of phone calls like your social security number has been changed. The cops are on their way. Or, you know, <laughs> you had a new vacation rental summer home and blah, blah, blah. Are there really are there times where like it just came down to you just answered your flipping phone and that was it? Yeah. And there's so many agents that just don't answer their phone. They see a number that they don't recognize and they just don't answer it. And I always think that's so strange. It could literally be a person calling you to tell you that they want to give you money, yeah. right? You have to work for it. You have to do something. But the outcome is that you're going to make money. Yeah. And like, what's the worst thing that happens? You hang up. It took five seconds of your day. I'm good on Viagra. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I, that's the worst thing that happened. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times clients have said to us, you were the first people to call us back. And so we're going to work with you. Just not because we were the best, not because our, we were the cheapest. For no other reason is that we were the first one to call them back. That's it. Pure and simple. If you were not a real estate agent, what would you do? Like, where would you be right now? Are we still a DJ? Are we managing like Aretha Franklin? No, she's dead. You can't manage her anymore. Since there's very few bowling alleys, I'm probably not (laughs) DJing at the bowling alley, like my middle school aspiration. Honestly, if I was not doing what I'm doing, which I love and I'm so thankful to be able to do this, and my back wasn't so terrible, I would be trying to be a firefighter. What draws you to that? Ever since I've been a little kid, it's been a a thing. I listened to Todd Shively's uh, podcast with with you guys where he talked about ever since he was a small child wanting to be a real estate broker. And I know Todd and I love Todd, but I think that's just so strange that like a little child's <laughs> like aspiration is to yeah. be a real estate broker. I've just always wanted to do that. And uh, I don't know if I'd be any good at it, but I would sure try if I didn't throw my back out punching the, the floor that I'm going to on an elevator, then I would, <laughs> nice. you know, or breathing. That's another thing that I do. Sometimes I breathe and then my you've back got, goes You've out. got the strong jar line, I think you could probably grow a pretty awesome mustache. So mm-hmm. there's all the yeah. qualifications mm-hmm. you need. You're halfway there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us about your absolutely worst day in real estate. I knew that this question was was coming. You ask it. Everybody. everybody. Yeah. And I'd like to flip the answer because I don't think that there's a worse day. I think we're genuinely lucky that that we have the ability to do this as a career, right? I get to help people sell and buy real estate. So there hasn't been a day where I ever just woke up. I've had this with other jobs where you just woke up and you thought, why do I do this? That hasn't happened. But it's not to say there haven't been some things that have really just made me go sideways. So no bad days, and it sounds really cliche, bad things ultimately leading to good and better, better days. I'm so struck by that. 
And I, I think as a newer agent still kind of finding my way, like, first of all, I am picking up my phone. So thank you for confirming that I'm doing one thing right, for <laughs> sure. I've never experienced the shifts that can happen when you do pick up the phone and all of a sudden something amazing lands in your lap. And I like that that just carries you through all of this, that there's the little things that happen that, that you know, are bound to happen in this business, but that you don't let them sink you. When I when I worked at Nordstrom, you know, one of the things that the salespeople at Nordstrom have to do is you have to try to get people to open up the Nordstrom credit card. Uh, I had a manager that I love and he used to say, go for the no. You have to get through so many no's before you get to a yes. So the sooner that you get through the no's, the sooner you're going to get to the yes. And I think that's how real estate works. At least that's how I try to remind myself when I'm having those challenging days and those challenging moments is that I need these. I need this to happen because that's what's going to get me to good stuff. Yes. Yeah. I came home from work one day as probably three years into owning Spade and Archer and I was just beat down. I had a client who didn't like anything that we did and we had a, a camera got stolen and we'd lost a check for a, for a payment or something. It was just a rough day. I came home and my, my husband says, well, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, it was just a rough day. And he was like, well, do you think you want to go back to being a general contractor again? And I had worked in a business as a general contractor under a boss who was probably unstable and it was miserable on a daily basis. And I I said, the worst day at Spade and Archer is better than my best day at my last job. And so even though it was hard today, I know it's going to get better tomorrow. Being an entrepreneur, being a sole proprietor like any real estate agent is, it is a emotional roller coaster every single day. And we do this crazy thing where we run towards the fire. I mean, bring back the firefighter thing. Like we're the ones who run towards the problems to try to fix things. And we do that on a daily basis over and over and over again. And sometimes we get burned, but most of the time we end up saving somebody and it's pretty cool. And it's a very rewarding career for sure. With that, can you tell us about one of those real good days? Yes. So the best days are often closing days, right? That's when your seller's thrilled because they were successful. Your buyers finally got the home that they've been searching for, dreaming about. And one story that that comes to mind is I had some clients that I had been working with for a very long time. This was right after my daughter was born. So like I didn't know up from down. I hadn't slept. You're in that kind of new parent haze where you have no idea what's going on. And they, of course, they found the perfect home right then, right? So we're out there, we're looking at it, we're doing the inspections. We're writing the offer and they didn't get it. They were bummed and they took some time off. And then we started searching again and then time went by. One of the things I, I always tell my clients when they lose is that it is going to work. You're going to be thrilled with how this turns out. You just don't know how it's going to end, but you will be thankful that whatever has happened, happened. And so these folks, they lost. I get this random call from a broker that says, hey, I think you guys wrote an offer on on this property and my clients won, but they need to sell for personal reasons. And this is just a couple months after getting in contract. So, so they closed the first one. Now they want to sell again. Now they now they want to sell it, right? So the people that just bought, they now need to sell. The property's not even on the market. We show up, we actually get in contract and we're working through our inspections and it's just tumultuous with, with the other party not coming together. And so my clients decided it's not meant to be. We don't think that we can work this out. So now I'm like, oh, God, it's the second time. We asked you for best day, David. Now you're getting us that worst yeah. day. This is like the second time yeah. I was on that house. Like, boom, bam, bang. This is the worst day 
uh, on yeah. its way to the best day because that house came on the market. Somebody bought it. So now it's been transacted a second time. And then randomly out of the blue, a few months later, the property comes back on the market. So now wow. 18 months later, this house is on the market for the third time. Your buyers haven't actually found anything else like compared to this. Like they nothing compares found... to you, like Sinead O'Connor kind of exactly. obsession on they, this house. Everything that we've done, everything that we've been looking at, we've compared back to this property and nothing has come close. And so wow. here it is a Friday afternoon. The property comes back on the market. We rush to go look at it again, mostly just to make sure that this new owner hasn't screwed the whole thing up. It still looks great. We write the offer. We get in contract less than 24 hours later. They buy the house. So they finally get it and they get it for less money than they were going to spend the second time. Which is amazing. Wow. So do they still live there? They do. You know, you just you have you never have any idea how these things are going to end. And I could tell you story after story of, you know, sale fails that buyers are able to come back in and, and buy the house that they lost out on or buyers that on their on their eighth offer finally get the house that's in the neighborhood that they wanted to be in that they haven't even found anything in that neighborhood. But now finally there's this opportunity and they're able to get it and they don't care that they lost seven other homes because they are thrilled with how it ended up. Every time we've ever bought a house, we've always lost out on something, something sale failed or something didn't go through or something didn't happen on a house that we were just dead in love with. Ultimately, we end up finding a house that is way better. And we like our shoulder gets sore from patting ourselves on the back being like, well, thank goodness we didn't buy that other house as if we had a choice. It, it always ends up being this thing that like you really can't have perspective on the situation until you're done with the journey. And once you're done with the journey, you can look back and see where that where those problems were that actually ended up benefiting you. But in the moment, man, holy cow, how did you keep those clients coming back? Because at some point, they're going to look at you and be like, this is all your fault. And we're going to blame you, David, like, how yeah. do you manage those people's emotions? It's easy to be the person that they can take the blame, right? Because a lot of people want to be able to blame somebody else. And real estate, it is emotional, unlike anything that you could try to fathom unless you've gone through it especially as a as a buyer in a very very seller focused market you don't you have no idea you don't realize it's going to keep you up at night the way that you keep people focused is one by hearing them out and having conversations with them and listening to how they're feeling and, and reminding them why they wanted to do this in the first place it's also about them to be okay with their feelings and move forward from that. I had a long conversation yesterday with a, a friend of mine and we were talking about that both of us had given up on therapy because essentially it was just somebody telling us that we're okay, like for allowing us to be okay with the crappy things that we were doing. We we're like, we need an accountability group. But like Amy, coming from a therapy background, like <laughs> therapist's job isn't really the, 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 to call us on our bull. Like their job is to like make us okay with the decisions that we make. And so is it the real estate agent's job to call their clients on the bad mistakes that they're making? Or is it their job to encourage them on the path that they want to take? Like how much steering do you do versus just validating? Probably we all approach that really differently. I mean, I, I think I, I step in and try and honor whatever is happening with my clients as much as possible. And I certainly don't approach clients thinking that I'm going to call them out 
out. I think in this market, we have to do a lot of work to prepare our clients for what's going to happen. And I think sometimes we do have to be very real with them about expectations. And sometimes that feels a little harsh. I've been jokingly calling myself the dream crusher with some clients I'm working with right now. Um, And I'm bringing, yeah, I'm bringing some humor in. They seem to think it's very funny and we're all making jokes about it because they continually send me things that are, you know, the very top of their price point. And we have to shrink down from there knowing that there's going to be 4 million offers and we're going to have to wrangle that. So I try and not be harsh about calling anybody out about their expectations. And instead I do try and just hold more space. David, I'd be so curious. How would you answer that question? I mean, I think one, one, you just have to be honest with people, especially in this market, right? Being a buyer, it's probably not the most fun you've ever had. Like it's, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be rough. I'm kind of a worst case scenario guy, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you the worst things that can happen. We're going to prepare for that. And then either that's going to happen and we've talked about it or something better is going to happen. If you prepare for the worst, then you're kind of always going to be okay. I also look at, you know, my job as really, I'm, I'm a provider of information. I'm here to educate and empower you, my client, to make the best decision for you and for your family. It's not really on me to make you feel good. I'm just here to help you make the best decisions because sometimes they're hard, right? Sometimes it's the house that you just, you want it. You want it so bad, but the price is going to escalate too high and you just need to go, you know what? I can't have that and I need to be okay with it and move on. I would add a second fork to prepare for the worst and we are constantly doing it in my business. I run the company with with Cole, who's kind of my right-hand guy. Cole is constantly preparing for the worst and I am always hoping for the best. And between those two of things, if we're always prepared for the worst and we're always hoping for the best, it keeps us from living in this place of like total darkness and negativity, where if you're only preparing for the worst and there is no hope that it could go other than that, it can be a really dark space to live in. But to have that hope to think that just maybe this, these preparations might not be necessary keeps us alive and, and still moving forward and going because like your clients that were buying that house the third time, how long did that whole period take to get through those three transactions just over 18 months 18 months of keeping faith that like this is going to have there had to be some positivity there it couldn't have all been doom and gloom right you have to have fun along the way and you're right i mean you you hope for the best you talk about the best but you don't just live there because you have to talk about the other stuff too yeah it can't be all pollyanna for sure then it's like people were just every day is terrible and everything is bad then you live there because it takes over. But if you prepare for it, you set up your foundation and then you build up from there, you're good. David Angelo is with Coldwell Banker Bain in Seattle. David, where can people find you? You can find me at www.davidangelo.com, A-N-G-I-U-L-O, uh, or on Instagram at David Angelo. We're going to have that spelling in the podcast link as well, so you can see that there. David, you have been an absolute dream guest. You did so well for your first time podcasting. You can now add a podcaster <laughs> to your business card. This is going to be fantastic. It's a new career. Go order new ones right now. Fantastic. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Oh, Amy, oh. did you get David back into the green room? Okay, are we good to go? Is he good? I did. He is safely returned to the green room. I think he was going to have one more um, one more bite of caviar before he left. That stuff is delicious. Yeah, and I heard MC Hammer popped in like halfway through, and so they get to hang out with MC Hammer. This is so awesome. It's Hammer time back there in the green room. 
Well, that room just gets better and better every week, doesn't it? It's the place to be. It really is. I mean, I think since the hot tub was added, the vibe is on. It pulled the whole aesthetic together. I love this conversation with David. I think it was fantastic. He's such a smart guy. He's so even keeled. Really just kind of gets the service industry and blame it on Nordstrom. Nordstrom understands service, man. You walk in there, it's hard to get mad because they're just so darn nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's awesome. One of my favorite trips to Nordstrom in my entire life, Beth Kellen and I were going to a big party down in Palm Springs. She absolutely hates clothes shopping. And I was like, I'll go with you. We'll make it fun. We're like, okay. So we went to the flagship Nordstrom store, which is in Seattle. It's the first one. And in that store, there are seven bars, seven bars. Yeah. (laughs) And so we decided that we were going to have a drink at every bar while we were shopping for dresses. We got her a really good dress, man. (laughs) Because we were like four shots in. It is amazing. (laughs) I have actually heard this story, Justin. Uh-huh, it's a really uh-huh. good dress. Champagne yeah. halfway through. It's changed my idea of what dress shopping should look like. <laughs> yes. I'm beginning to feel like Beth Kellen is, if I'm Oprah, she's my Gail. Because I keep bringing her up in like every single podcast. It's crazy. <laughs> we went on a walk yesterday, actually. We were walking in McClay Park, which is part of Forest Park. I've never been there before. It's beautiful. And we were oh. talking about this idea of no being a really difficult answer for a lot of women in mm. the world. When you're asked, can you work overtime? Or can you smile? more or can you wear your hair in a different way that it's really difficult to say no as a woman as a male and as a business owner no was my default answer for years and years and years because no is very inexpensive it doesn't cost anything to say no can i go on vacation no can i buy some jackets no and if you just default to no every single time it doesn't cost any time money or energy and so as a man in this world with the privilege that i have of being male no comes very easy to me so can you talk a little bit about this idea of no being tough and for women in business for a lot of times we're just socialized so different Differently. I mean, no matter where you come from, I feel like we're trying to be really thoughtful, my partner and I, about how we influence our son and, and trying to be really intentional and about these things. But even in the context of that, I think that women are just socialized always to say yes. Like we are supposed to say yes to things. We are supposed to be the caregivers. We are supposed to put other people's needs first under all circumstances. And we're just supposed to jump. We're supposed to smile more. That's always my favorite. Oh, honey, just smile more. I haven't heard it in many years, but that's always been the one that I'm like, oh, man. Was that, that a just thing? Because my... I can tell you, nobody has ever told me to smile ever yeah. in my entire yeah. life. Men, yeah, men tell women to smile. Okay, I'm going to clarify. We're just going to say some men, because I yes. don't know if I've ever told yes, a woman please. to smile, honestly. Yes, yeah. please. And, well, I except when I'm taking that. a picture, you know, when you say smile. <laughs> yeah, that. And that is, that's, that seems very legitimate, Justin. Okay. I feel like it happens to me less as I get older, probably as I come into sort of the fierceness that I feel like I carry. I think that most women have to spend some time or a lot of women have to spend some time learning to say no and learning to put up boundaries and learning to manage, you know, other people's expectations of us and and what we want to do versus what other people think we should do. Because I do think that there is a baseline socialization that's really different. So for you, is there like a conscious thought process when somebody says to you something that you would initially say no to? to do you default to yes, but then you have to think about it for a second and be like, actually, I'm going to say no to that. Yeah, I have enough of a people pleaser in me, which I actually have tried to (laughs) 
to become very conscious of. So if I am saying yes to something, I'm doing it from not just that immediate reaction of like, oh, of course I'll do that for you. Of course I'll jump in and help. Of course I'll save the day. Just taking a breath and thinking about what are the ramifications of saying yes to that? What is that going to actually look like? And is that good for me and feasible for me? The same goes for me with no. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, so this is New Year's 2020, I made a resolution. I am no longer allowed to say no. If I feel like I'm going to say no, I have to stop and say, can I think about that and get back to you in this amount of time? And maybe it's 10 minutes or maybe it's a day or maybe it's something because I generally found that if I asked for a little bit of time to think about it, I could come back in a much more thoughtful way and say, Mm -hmm. I like your idea. These are the portions of it that I like. These are the things I still, I think we still need to work out. And I think this is how we can get to where you're talking about. Or maybe ultimately I come back and I say, you know what, this isn't really going to work. And these are the reasons why, because we've already tried this six times and every single time it didn't work. And that's just the way that it is. Asking for permission to not give an immediate answer has led me to a place where our business has grown so much more because we're not working in a non-collaborative culture anymore. We're working in the collaborative culture where it's not only my ideas that get to go forward, it's everybody's ideas that get to go forward because I'm not immediately shutting everybody down all the time. That's gigantic that that just this conscious effort on your part to not say no has allowed so many different things to come in and flourish. And so do you think that kind of policy can work for somebody who defaults to yes all the time? that they can say, can I take a beat and think about that? Like, is that acceptable? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's different things that would come up. I'm going to relate this. I just have parenting on my brain this week. So um, we've actually, we've been talking a lot about, I have a much harder time with no, also with my Mm -hmm. five-year-old. And sometimes yes is the path of least resistance. You know, can I have like a bite of that cookie before dinner? Like, yes, is going to be an easier answer, even though ultimately I really want to say no to that. So I have been actually buying myself some time with, hey, let me think about that for a second. I absolutely think that buying yourself some time, no matter which direction of the yes or no, is easier for you. I think it's really smart, Justin. I think there's all kinds of things that could come from that. We make two types of decisions in our lives. We make emotional decisions and we make logical decisions. Emotional decisions are always fast. They are the fastest and they are often (laughs) wrong. Logical decisions are (laughs) way slower. They take a long Mm -hmm. time to get to, but they are often right. If we can shut off the emotional decision-making side of our brain and allow the logical side to catch up, we will usually get to the right answer, whether it is yes or no. We just need to allow ourselves a little bit of time to do that. Maybe that's the entire lesson right there is it doesn't matter if your default is yes or no. You just need to get to the logical side before the emotional side beats you to the punch. I think my wife is really going to appreciate that you said that to me. I love this. Like we, we, when we were talking yesterday about what we're going to talk about today, Amy and I realized that we're like, oh, this is so cool. We're a male and a female. And we're talking about these ideas of like gender differences and how we say yes versus how we say no. And then we realized that like, oh yeah. And by the way, both of us are gay as well. And so (laughs) we kind of have this like middle ground where we're able to understand each other a little bit more because Amy's in a relationship with a woman, which is typically something that's designated for men. And I'm in a relationship with men, which is typically something that's designated for women. And so we get to like have this little bit of gray area that I don't think everybody has the privilege of having access to. So super duper lucky to have you on the team, Amy. I just love <laughs> oh, this. Thank I love you. it. Our guest today was David Angelo. You can find him at David Angelo on Instagram or davidangelo.com. 
Amy Romberg, where can people find you? I am at amyromberg.com. Easily found out there. <laughs> Fantastic. Our music is written and performed by Joff Metz. You can find him at fivestarguitars.com. Our producer is Nicole Durkin. He's doing a fantastic job. Our editor is Richie. Thank you, Richie. You always make us sound so intelligent. You can find us at spade-archer.com. If you have a story that you want to tell, please reach out. Uh, the podcast is called Behind the Yard Sign. You can find us on every platform that there is. If you've got a story to tell, reach out and tell us. And thank you so much to everybody who has reached out that wanted to tell us their story behind the yard sign. This production of Behind the Yard Sign is brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.